Our scripture reading comes today from uh, the book of Mark, chapter 1, starting at verse 40 and going into chapter 2. Then a man with... Then a man with leprosy came to him, Jesus, on his knees, begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. And he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once. Jesus told him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it wildly and spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in the deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together, and there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. Then they came to him and brought him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat onto which the paralytic was laying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes and the teachers were there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this with themselves, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you speak to us. We ask that you give us ears to hear and a heart that would understand and be moved toward you. Amen. This is an exciting time in Jesus' ministry. In that he's, so he's gone, he's been baptized, he's called the first disciples, and he started to teach, he started to heal, he started to act in authority, he's called out demons, and they have obeyed him. And people are, where, everywhere he goes, people are drawn and attracted to figure out what is going on, who is this person, who is Jesus, and what is he doing? And in the back of most people's minds, there's this question, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's come? Is this the one who's going to change everything that's wrong around us in our world today and make it right? And it's funny because looking at the way this passage opens, it doesn't fit my understanding of modern-day evangelism in the, in the idea like 
Jesus' instruction in this, he, like, in this healing of, that we first see is, no matter what you do, don't tell anyone that I did this. That's not instruction that we would, I would say, ever give in the modern church. Okay, we're going to go take care of your needs. We're going to help you. We're going to heal you. But no matter what, you don't use the name Jesus because we don't talk about that. Don't, we, in fact, if, you, if I said that, I'd actually be accused of a false gospel, and I think rightly so. And so I think it's worth exploring why is Jesus so adamant in his instruction to this person, do not tell them that you have, do not talk about me, go to the priest, go to the temple, be cleansed. And I want to point out this isn't just a one-off, in that there are often times when Jesus almost prevents people from talking about who he is. And sometimes it's not people. Like, just if you go back to the scriptures we were talking about just a week ago, when, he when they talk about Jesus casting out demons, it says, and this is the end of Mark 1.34, he said, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. If you look at the demon, like the first sign where it says there's a demon who Jesus calls out and rebukes, this de it says, the demon cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and saying, be silent. Now, he's a demon. My presumption is he does a lot of bad things, including but not limited to taking over this person. But what we have recorded is the demon said, you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, stop talking. Be silent and come out of him. There's other words, not just, but if we were to skip forward and look at the transfiguration, Jesus goes onto a mountain with a few of his disciples, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is literally transformed. He is in dazzling white, and he's there with Moses and Elijah, and the disciples are confused and scared. And then after this event ends, when they're going back down the mountain, he says, and don't tell anyone about this event until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why does he say, wait? This is not the time to talk about this. Because I'm here to tell you, if, if, Jesus, if Elijah or Moses, or I guess to extrapolate for like, if Jesus walked through the door and started talking to us for a while, and then as he was leaving said, by the way, don't talk about this, that would be, well, one, hard to do. But why would, and so my question is, why is Jesus using language like this? Why is he almost like almost muting the volume. And I want to talk about something. I want to go actually, and I promise I'm not trying to regurgitate the entirety of Mark, but I do want to go back to the beginning of Mark where it describes John the Baptist. And in talking about John the Baptist in the beginning of Mark in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. And the reason I reference that is because I think it's important to remember that in the context of that, pro in that prophetic text, it, by definition, the, the world was not ready for the Messiah. The way had to be prepared. 
God's kingdom, Israel, was not ready to receive their king. And I think a part of that is they, there's, there was a lot of predefined ideas about who a king is, what a king will do, and how he will interact with his people. And this isn't necessarily a new thing. If you go back to, let's see if I have this. Um, if you go back, sorry, it's in 1 Samuel, where God's people, and this is in the Old Testament, God's people ask for a king. And they said, we want a king, we want to be led, we want to be like all the other nations. We're looking around us and we see all of the other nations around us have a human king and we want to be like them. And God tells Samuel, and this is a really bad idea. You don't want to have a human king. Have you seen all of the problems that, that these earthly kings cause for you? They oppress you. They take your stuff. They, they don't listen. Have you thought about what you want? And they said, no, no, no. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. Because there's an idea of what a king does and how a kingdom is spread. And even in this text, I think it's very hard for the Jews and is the nation of Israel to not take their cues from the nations around them in terms of what a king is and what a king will do. There was an idea the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do a few things and I know what those things are. And you look at, and it's different than, like the culture is obviously different now than it is then, but one of the points is we have an idea in our present day of a separation. There is the church, there's religion, and there's the state and the government, and those things are separate. And there's some debate about how much or little they intermix, but we have an idea those are distinct spheres of influence. And then you have economics. You have the idea that there is economic power, which again is linked to government, but it is distinctly separate. There is, you can have your own personal or you can have a corporate wealth or corporate money that then is your resource that gets spent and you kind of have some, and there's cultural influence. And these are all separate spheres. In this, in the ancient world, those spheres weren't really separated like that. You had religious power. For example, in Israel, you have the temple. That's where the capital is. You have cultural power. You had where like all of the signs and symbols that we order our lives by aren't like, in that time, they were much more interlinked. You have economic power. You have co coinage that is made by the government. And whenever you, if you are the dominant government, it's your coins that are going to be used. In fact, in its military power is also linked. And all of these things come together. And so the idea of the Messiah is someone who's going to come and dominate these spheres. And I think Jesus is, on some level, trying to reset the terms that we use to describe the king, the kingdom, and the world as it should be. Because I want to look at the scripture where he starts to, for like, and he's done all of these things separately, but he starts to talk about in this next passage, and he puts teaching and healing and authority all together, trying to point out, do you see how these things fit? And so I want to walk through this story of the paralytic, which is a crazy story. Because as much as like I've talked about like him, don't talk about who I am right now, everyone is seeking him. In fact, like it describes in earlier passages, he's gone to, he had to go to the deserter to lonely places. Because any town he went to, there were so many crowds, he couldn't, so he keeps trying to get away, and he can't. Because everyone around him is trying to understand 
are you who we thought you, are you the one we thought was coming? Are you the Messiah? Who are you and what are you doing? And so it says, he goes home. Like it says, he entered Copernicum and after some days it was reported that he was home. He's not going, he's not out on mission, like literally speaking the way you think of it. He's actually gone home and the crowds followed him. And so they followed him to the point where there's so many people, he can't, there's no, there's not even standing room anymore. Like people are lined up out the door trying to get a sense what's going on. And so he's teaching. And then in what is in my mind a just surreal moment, you see the roof come off of the house. Like, and which is a hard, like, like, and part of me just imagines the almost desperation trying to get to Jesus. I don't know what's going on. I've heard of this guy. I know that there's something special here that's not elsewhere. I, I have to get to him. And it couldn't have been that fast of a process. Like, you don't just take a roof off and then 30 seconds later drop in. Like, this had to take a while. And just imagining that the drive it took to decide, like, you had to get, that's a pretty radical statement. I couldn't get in, can't get into the window, not the door. You know what? I'm going to go through the roof. And they had to be like, somebody had to caution them, this is not a good idea. Maybe you shouldn't do this, right? But I want to point out one thing Jesus, no, that's noted in the scripture. It says, Jesus noted their faith. These were people who were so desperate to get to Jesus, there is literally no barrier they would not try to claw through. And they clawed through. In this scene, so many different things happen in it at the same time. First, you have this person come down in his mat, who I, I presume is obviously paralyzed. And I imagine that it's pretty obvious to everyone around why he's come. I am sick. I've heard you heal sick people. Can you help me? And Jesus' response, one isn't to throw them out of the house, but it also isn't what they expected. He says, your sins are forgiven. This is a double take. Wait, I didn't know that was on the table. Wait, how did we get here? <laughs> and so everyone in the room is like, whoa, I mean, that sounds, I mean, I'm sure the parallel, that sounds great and all, but that's not what, but then you have the teachers of the law who had an understanding of who God was and how God operated, and they knew how God forgave. And this wasn't it. One, because as they say, God is like, what, I want to make sure I get this right. What did they say? Why does he speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so unless you're God, you're not supposed to be doing this. And also, I, God wrote down in the law how sins are forgiven. You, go, you make an offering, you go to the priest, you go to the temple, and there is a mechanism that has been given to us, and I understand that. And there was an understanding that was, one, go to the temple, but two... Forgiveness should cost the forgiven something. Like there's an offering that's made. And I'm going to go back and read because there's a great example. If I can remember where I wrote it. Also in Samuel. And it's Samuel 2:24. If you have your Bibles. And in this passage, it's a description of David in the census, which is a description of David 
who wanted to essentially know how awesome he was, so he wanted to count all his people, and he was relying on the number, of, like he, he was going to define how powerful he was by the number of people he had instead of defining by God, and so God said, no, that was wrong, that is sin, you should not do that. And then God laid out, because you have sinned, there will be this punishment. This is going to happen to you and your people. And then there's a scene where God's people are being punished. There is a plague going through Israel. And then you get to David, and he says, he try, he says I must repent. God, please alleviate this event. I have sinned. I am sorry. How does this stop? And so he's, David is instructed to go to another house where there's a threshing floor and to make a sacrifice there. And he goes to that threshing floor and the owner of it says, oh, you're David. I know you. You're, you are the king. You're a good person. In fact, whatever you need, go ahead and take it because whatever you need, I want to give to you. And David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And he does. He pays for this threshing floor and makes a sacrifice to God. But the idea is, for the forgiveness of sin, I have to make an offering, an unblemished animal, something. I have to give something, not just repentance, the idea of turning, but like I have to give something up. And it's going. And so there's an idea in, in the scene where Jesus is describing that forgiveness costs something, and this person was supposed to pay it. But he didn't. And so Jesus continues, and this statement, he says, Jesus says to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take your mat, stand up, and walk? And I want to point out with this statement, Jesus is equating sin, or forgiveness and restoration in a way that it, it is actually, it raises the bar for what forgiveness is and makes it really hard. Because forgiveness is, and I say it is, an erasure of debt. It is, you have, you have sinned, you have fallen short, there is, some, there is something wrong, and there is one way to put, there is a debt that's owed and it must be repaid somehow, which it is. But it's also, Jesus is saying, the forgiveness of sin is the cancellation of sin's effect. And to the people Jesus is talking to, there was an idea that brokenness in the world and in people came from sin. If you look at John in one of his scriptures, there's a man born blind, and the, the teachers ask him, why is, he why is he blind? Has he sinned or has his parents sinned? But the take-home message there is there's this recognition there was sin, and therefore there is this brokenness. And in that passage, Jesus actually talks about how it has nothing to do with the sin of human service. It's to, so that we could have this moment and I could show you who I am. But in this passage, there's, it didn't surprise them, I don't think, as much that there was the idea that this man is a paralytic and somehow that's related to sin. But that the forgiveness of sin is his physical restoration, that he would be made new. That's a high bar. Because when I think of forgiveness myself, there are people who could walk through that door, and I've forgiven them. Like, I've gone through the motions of like, okay, I know what, what they did was wrong, they've acknowledged it, and I'm going to work, even try to work with them to move past it. 
But there are people who could walk through that door and my heart will skip a beat, the, next, on the, the hairs on the back of, back of my neck will go up, and I'll just be angry. What are you doing here? And what Jesus is saying is if forgiveness can be made equivalent with restoration, then somehow forgiveness can be that person walking through that door, and all of a sudden, I'm not angry. I can be excited. In Christ, if, if forgiveness is this real and true thing, as he describes, we can all sit at a table and all of the pain that we have caused one another is somehow erased. What Jesus is describing is a forgiveness that robs sin of all of its power. For the victim who is actually physically traumatized by the events of, that have occurred, by the victim, by, by the perpetrator who, who is rattled with, I mean, at best guilt, if most, so tainted by his, their experience that all of a the sudden they can't even see what is right and wrong, that somehow all of these things can be fully restored. And then... Jesus says to them next, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And this statement is very powerful. It's true, because on the one hand, the statement Son of Man almost has no meaning. It just literally means the Son of a Man. Like, literally spoken, it's, it, it didn't, it just literally meant, there, I am a human who was born from a man. To the people who were looking for the Messiah, this was language they immediately recognized. They knew where it came from. They knew what he was talking about. And I want to go back to read this. And it's in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. And I apologize. I need a moment to get there. And this is a vision that the prophet Daniel had. And he's been seeing visions of beasts and of kingdoms. And all of a sudden, this, we start where we break into where God's rule comes. As I kept watching, the thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming from his presence. A thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched then because the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. As I continued watching in the night visions, 
Suddenly one like a son of man was coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so in Israel, you have a time and a people where they were lost looking for the Messiah. There were several Messianic figures that came up claiming to be the Messiah, both before and after Jesus. This was a people and a time that was primed for how are we going to get out of this? And they'd been looking, seeking through the scriptures. They were fam- many of the, the teachers were familiar with this text. And so when God says, or when Jesus says, God, so that you know, as soon as he says the word son of man, they know, they think of this scripture. They think of, wait, he's talking about the time when the beasts will be overthrown, when the ancient of days will come and settle all scores, when there will be one, the son of man will come, the Messiah, who will, his dominion will be everlasting and it will be good and right, and all of these things that are wrong are going to be fixed. And in Jesus saying this, there's actually, I would say, two messages. One is, do you see who's saying these words to you right now? Do you see who is right in front of you? Do you see what is happening? God's Son is here so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. But he's also saying, do you know who you're looking for? Did you think you were looking for a military figure? Did you think you were looking for someone who would beat, like, oppress the other nations that are just like those nations oppressed you? Did you think it was just going to work the way all of the other kingdoms that you've seen have worked? Do you know who the one is you're looking for? Do you know who the Messiah is and what he will do? And he says to the man, stand up, take your mat, and walk. And in this moment, so Jesus has healed before. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's taught with authority. And all the people have seen these different elements. And then in this moment, he brings it all into one moment where he's showing you this is what the kingdom looks like. This is, what the, this is how the king interacts with your, his, his people. Son, your sins are forgiven. Stand up, take your mat, and walk. Be restored. This is the business that God is about. And the people were amazed. It says they had no answer. And as Jesus is moving into his public ministry, he talks more and more. And in each, each of these stories that we have given to us through Scripture, Jesus is peeling back the layers between our understanding and who God is and what the kingdom of heaven is. And he's giving them a glimpse that forgiveness can come to you even if you didn't pay for it. And we have an understanding of that because we understand that Jesus has come. He has died for our sins. He has been resurrected. And he's giving them a glimpse of this. He's giving them a glimpse of, do you understand what it is, what, what God's kingdom is? And for me, there are two lessons for, of it. One is that I, I don't get to pick God's battles for him. Even if I really want to, 
Um, and that can be, sometimes it's the most trivial things. Like, I wish God cared a little more about Arkansas sports than it seems like he does, because there's a team of, like, Alabama has been good for like 10 years, and it's just not fair. They need to share this, right? But, and it's trivial and frivolous, but I'll get so emotionally caught up in just wanting this thing to, like, stand up and say, like, no. I read Twitter way more than I should, and I can get really curmudgeon-y. Like, and it's really hard for me to step back and say, no, this is not actually the arena in which the kingdom happens is this digital space on my phone. God's kingdom happens with people. And it's not for me to pick God's battles for him. I should be looking for where God is working and moving and bringing his kingdom into our world. And the other piece that I, I need to remind myself, because I am a, often not, but still sometimes very prideful and determined to be self-sufficient human being. And if I have, there are times when I recognize I've sinned, it's like, no, I, know, I can fix it. I can totally do this. I've got to have something. There's got to be some box, some button I can put, something I can build or act I can do that will somehow make this better. Here you go. I know, I know it's not enough, but I've got it. I have not just repentance, not just turning from sin and becoming more like what God would have us to be, but like I have to somehow bring atonement to this. And God said he saw their faith. And he said, Sons, your sin, or son, your sins are forgiven. And it's not about atonement. It's not about me making up for anything. It's not about this, I can desperately find a way to make this debt that I've created a little less so that it's somehow manageable. It's about stepping in faith to Christ and saying, Father, help me. And being moved by him. 